we have hundreds of pictures up on the wall, and they're all pictures from games that we've won. If there was ever a picture to put up there from a losing game, I think this would be it. We're driving, probably be able to score, put some points up on the board. Third and goal, Brady takes the snap. Here's the blitz. There's a blitz, and there's an opportunity to switch it. We switched it perfectly, and Brady rolled out to his left and just threw it right to me. Throws the run pass, gonna be intercepted. Champ Bailey in the end zone. Down the sideline, Bailey, 30, 40, foot race. Bailey stepped out of a tackle. Champ Bailey, 30, 20. And the guy that flushed Brady out of the pocket is obviously my lead blocker. But instead of him blocking for me, he's watching me run. And here comes Ben Watson out of nowhere. 15, 10, 5, did he get there? He's hit out of bounds, I think, at the 1. Ben Watson shows the hustle, doesn't give up on the play. And he hit Champ Bailey. It looked as if like he was crossing the goal line. What's happening there? Damn, I ain't even yeah, that I don't know who was, but he hawked That fool. It was a great effort play by Ben Watson, and you could see how fast he was, how athletic he was, and how competitive he was to make that play. Ben Watson, this is a great example. Play until the whistle blows. The play's never over. Ben was a great teammate and did his job and did it very well, but the effort in which uh, that play epitomizes should be the, the effort and the standard for, for all teams that want to be successful. That was something for Ben Watson. I mean, that is absolutely amazing, running 120 yards when the other guy's just running 100 to track him down in the middle of all that. Love it. Love that, that clip. I could show you 100 others when we think about this idea of pursuit, hustle, getting after it, movement, right? Today, we want to talk about that idea of pursuit and progress in doing that. As I, as I think about it, I can show you war clips. I mean, we, we celebrate when, when uh, there's guys who are pressing the line forward, pursuing, moving it forward. I could show you stories or tell you stories of, of people who started out at, at the bottom and ended up just keeping their eye on what they wanted to pursue, whether that be education or the arts or you name it. And we celebrate that movement. We celebrate that pursuit. And so today, as we wrap up the masculinity part of our He, She, His series, we want to talk about this idea of what does it look like to call a man to pursue. Before we do that, I want to make sure we're all on the same page from the last few weeks. So we're now, you know, four weeks into this series and, and we've made some really big statements. And the first one is this, is that the core calling of a man the core calling of a man is responsibility. It is to take responsibility. That's the, the core calling of every man on the planet. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, and we see that God creates heaven. He creates earth. It is good. And in Genesis chapter 2, he puts Adam right there in the garden and says, work it, protect it, guard it cultivate it, don't eat from that tree, and be responsible for my good creation. That's what he does. He calls him to be responsible and to take responsibility. We also saw it last week in Matthew chapter 1 where Jesus, who is the step, or uh, Joseph, who's the stepfather of Jesus, who is asked to marry this woman, Mary, who is pregnant and the child's not his, and Joseph is going to take responsibility 
for her and for a child that's not his. And it's a big responsibility because he'll be the savior of the world. We, we gave the definition of biblical manhood here at Radius is this, the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. Gladly taking on sacrificial responsibility. I recognize that, that I'm going to gladly take on this amazing opportunity to die to myself and to take responsibility for the things and the people who are entrusted to me. Where you live, where you work, and where you play. That is what we are called to do, core calling of a man. The core temptation of a man, we said, is passivity. The core temptation is for a man to sit back and to shirk his responsibility, to abdicate that and to say, you know what? I'm not stepping in. It's none of my business. I don't want to do that. It's too hard. It's going to cost me something. You can go off on a hundred different things. But at the end of the day, the core temptation of a man is to step back instead of to step forward, to be passive rather than to take responsibility. We saw this in Genesis chapter three. I'm gonna read it here in a moment. I'm not gonna spend a whole lot of time on it. But while the serpent was talking to Eve and giving her the spiel over why that they could eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there is Adam standing next to her. He is there but does nothing. He doesn't provide, he doesn't protect, he doesn't step forward. He is passive. It is the epitome of a passive man. And so for us, we would say, man, we don't want to be passive. We don't want to shirk our responsibility. The third thing I would tell you is not only do we have a core calling and a core temptation, but we as men have core capacities. We have things that we are capable of. And that's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. The core capacity of a man is to provide. The core capacity of a man is to protect. And the core capacity of a man is to pursue. We talked about provision a couple of weeks ago, provision financially, provision to work, provision emotionally, provision spiritually. That is what we're responsible for. I'm responsible for that in my sphere of influence who God has entrusted me and it's my job to provide that. It's my job to protect. It's my job as a man to protect that around me both physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. That is my core capacity as a man. And then obviously what we're going to talk about today, which is pursuit, is movement. Let me show it to you in the Bible. And and I think when we see it in these first few chapters of scripture, we're really going to see this as a beautiful opportunity. It is an amazing adventure up front for this young couple to pursue so much that God is calling them. Let's take a look at it. Genesis chapter one is the first place I want to start. It says this and Verse 26, the climax of creation on on day six, he says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and they will rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the livestock of all the earth and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. Do you see the pursuit right up front? It's really clear. Movement is in the very first command of God. Progress is in the very first command of God. And it is be fruitful and multiply and then do what? Fill the earth. 
It was never intended to stay stationary. It was never intended to be static. It was never intended to just kind of stagnate in a spot. It was intended to fill, move, progress. If you think about this at first creation, Genesis 1 and 2, it's perfect. It is perfect. Matter of fact, we would call it sacred space. Why is it sacred space? Because man physical, is able to interact with God, the spiritual. They overlap, not completely because God is, he's got a spiritual realm, but he is able to overlap in this garden, this beautiful creation. And this is God's will that this overlap, this sacred space would go to all the earth. It wouldn't just stay in one place. It's not that he just wanted Adam and Eve to experience it. He wanted all of mankind to experience it. This thing had to move out. And so when I read Genesis 1, this is what I see. I see progress. I see movement. I also see a will to obey. This was God's intended will. And I don't think it's changed. Instead of a garden, though, in order to have sacred space, we have to have the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His will is the same. He has wanted that to permeate the planet. So man has a will to obey. He's got this will to pursue and to run after. The second thing he has is a job to do. Look at it in chapter 2, verse 15. I know we've read these passages a lot, but they are foundational to this. Look at the job. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on that day you eat from it, you will certainly die. So God gives his will up front and his will is for sacred space to, to fill the earth and this beautiful overlap to go out. And then he says, I got a job for you, Adam. And here's the job. I need you to work the garden. I need you to cultivate the garden. I need you to protect this place. It is a very specific job to do. Very specific, a will to obey and a job to do. And when I think about the things that we pursue, men, we would say we have a job to do and we're going to wake up tomorrow or some of you are going to head out there this afternoon and you are going to have a lot of pursuit and energy and movement toward that job. And rightfully so, because we have a job to do, but I also think we have a spiritual job to do. We have more than just a physical job to go make happen. So he's got this work. He's supposed to do it. He's supposed to, to cultivate and to guard. And then he gives him another job. Just read right down there in, in verse 20. Or excuse me, I'll start in verse 19. So the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found as his complement. Job number two was to name. It was to name the animals. This is an amazing work of progress. This is an amazing work of pursuit. Now, I know when I say that, you're like, Russell, you're stretching this. 
For thousands of years, we have been celebrating man's progress as we build upon what God has built and started. Let me give you an example. I am at Hardin-Simmons University. I'm studying Bible. I'm trying to get out as quickly as I can because I'm going to go work on a, a master's degree. And I'm like, I don't want to be in school for 10 years. I go to Houston Community College, that's where I'm from, and I took a little winter course. Winter course would be about a, a week long, eight hours a day. I'm going to try to knock out some history class. I'm sitting there, and the professor knows that I'm a Bible student at a private Baptist college. And so at the time, I thought he was picking on me. Later, like now I'm looking back 20 years later, I'm like, I wonder if he was actually serving me softballs, and I just missed it. Either way, I'm in this class. He's talking about the calendar. The calendar, January, February, you get it. He says this, I'm, to be honest with you, I'm a little glazed. It's an eight-hour class. We're midway through this thing. I, I'm not really sure how it, you know, engaged I was. He says, hey, Russell. I'm like, uh-oh. He goes, you're a Bible major at Hardin-Simmons. Did we invent the calendar or did we discover the calendar? Shocked. Number one, that he called me out like that, a little offended that he called me out like that. And so I began to ramble because I'm supposed to say something. And what came out of my mouth was incoherent and it drooled off of my chin onto my shirt. He knew I didn't have a clue what I was talking about. And he just stops me, cuts me off, and he just starts going off on it. I just sat there for a minute like, man, that stinks. That stinks to not have, a, have an idea to this, right? And then as we, we look at this, here's the reality. The reality is, is that when we think about inventing the calendar or discovering, I want you to be clear, God clearly created time. He clearly created well, how, how many hours it takes to rotate and how many days to go around the sun. He clearly created all this, but this is what he gave us the freedom to do to call the month January, to call the month February. And in February, he gave us the freedom to say, hey, every four years, you got a leap year. He gave us that freedom, and we celebrate that. You know, we celebrate when somebody discovers that A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Did we invent that? But well, we sure got to name it. Did we invent gravity, or did we get to name gravity? See, that is progress. That is us celebrating what God has done. And he has given us the opportunity to step in and to name and to give progress to this, clearly within boundaries. But he gave us this freedom. What, what a job to have. And whether that's in the arts or athletics or science or biology or literature, we have been discovering what God had put in there a long time ago. And we just get to, we just get to name it. So man had a, a will to obey, had a job to do. And then he has what we find out in verse 21. We, we saw in verse 20 that there was no one, like he, he's naming all the animals. And he says, there's, there's no one like me. There's no one of my kind to use the word from Genesis one. So verse 21 says, so the Lord caused a deep sleep and to come over the man. And he slept, and God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. And then the Lord God made the rib that he had taken from the man into 
a, a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman for she was taken from man. This beautiful poem as he is overwhelmed to finally look at something and someone that is like him. And then we get the verse that Jesus quotes, Paul quotes. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked and yet felt no shame. Do you see the pursuit there? He gave Adam a will to obey, a job to do, and a woman to love. That's what he did. And he said, you're going to pursue her. You're going to leave your father and your mother, and you are going to pursue her and cleave unto her, and you will become one flesh That is the job of the man to pursue that relationship, a a will to obey, a job to do, and a woman to love. And I think about pursuit. I mean, I I think about leaving my mom and dad and cleaving to my wife, Terry. And for me, the pursuit was a little corny, but it worked. She was a piano teacher. I wanted to spend time with her, so I signed up for piano lessons. (laughs) Soon as I got the first date, I cut, cut the piano lessons hurry in a hurry, and now we're good to go. Whatever it takes, right, fellas? You pursue. And now for me, the pursuit didn't end. 21 years later, the pursuit is still to become one flesh. The pursuit is still to become one and to cleave and to have that unity. You still got to work at that and pursue that. And that's a sermon in and of itself, right? We'll leave that for Ephesians 5 in a few weeks. So we have this, this idea of a will to obey and a job to do and a woman to love. And this is all through scripture. It really is. Let me give you a few of these examples, just in case you think that this is just in Genesis one and two, just a few chapters later, there's a guy named Noah and Noah is going to be the guy who, as a result of all this sin that is running rampant throughout the world, God's going to say, I'm going to show you what my will is. My will is that I'm going to start over. I don't like how this has gone down. There's violence. There's sexual immorality. And I'm going to start over. And I'm going to start over with you and your family. He gave him a will to obey. And then he gave him a job to do. And what was the job Noah was supposed to do? Build a boat. And put the animals on it. And 150 years later, the boat was done and the animals were on it. Will to obey and a job to do. He had a woman to love. We don't know a whole lot about that, but we know a whole lot about the first two. Just a few chapters later, Abraham. Abraham was told the will of God to obey. And the will of God to obey that was given to Abraham is that I want to bless every person on the planet through your offspring. That's what he told him. That's my will. That's my will. And then he said, I've got something for you to do. I've got a job for you to do. And that job is to leave your family, take Sarah, and go to the land that I will show you. And start having kids. I'm going to make you a great nation. A will to obey, a job to do. He had a woman to love. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Moses, another one. Moses is up there on the mountain tending sheep. The fire, uh, the, the bush catches on fire and it's not consumed. And God sells him his will. And what's his will? That the nation of Israel should not be enslaved to Egypt. That's the will. Hey, and guess what, Moses? You got a job to do. Here's the job. Go down and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. You're gonna have to do it like 10 times, but you're gonna go down there and do it. It's a job to do. It's a job to do. 
You say, that's all Old Testament. Fine, I'll give you some, some New Testament. Remember Paul in, in Acts chapter 9, when, when Jesus shows up to him, he says, here's my will. My will is that the death, burial, and resurrection isn't only for the Jews. It's for everybody. That's his will. And he then says, I got a job for you. I need you to go preach this to the Gentiles, the people that aren't Jewish, and plant some churches and make this thing happen and stand before kings. He gave him a job to do. Or what about Jesus Christ? We've said this every week. Jesus is the better provider. He is the better protector. And he is the better pursuer. What was the will of God that he told Jesus? God told Jesus, says, I want to save the planet. I want to create a way for people to have relationship with me, God the Father. And he gave them a job to do. And what was the job? Go down there, live 30 some odd years, be perfect, and then you're going to be rejected and you're going to be scorned and you're going to be mocked and beaten and spat on and then they're going to crucify you on a cross and then three days later, you're going to come back to life. That's the job to do. And Jesus also had a woman to love. Ephesians 5 says that the church is the what? The bride. He had a will of God. He had a job to do. And now he is the head of the church, the bride of Christ, and a woman to love. And guess what? He's going to love the church well because he's going to come back for us, right? Crazy, isn't it? I'll take it one step further. For us, when we read passages like Timothy and Titus, and we get these qualifications for leadership in the church, like elders and deacons, and we see that those are men we realize that the core calling of a man is to take responsibility. We realize that the core capacity of a man is to provide and to protect and to pursue. And those elders are charged, those deacons are charged with the will of God. And what is it? To tend the flock, to shepherd the church. And what are they to do specifically? Their job? Pray, preach the word, protect, make sure we're doing sound doctrine. And that's the man's role. And that's why we have male elders here at Radius who hold up that mantle and continue to do that because that is the core capacity of a man. As I look at all of that, I sit back and I see an amazing opportunity. I look at that and I say, what an adventure. Sign me up. If I'm a guy and you can put me in an untarnished, perfect world with this brand new thing to conquer and to, and to cultivate. And I get to decide where's the apple orchard going to go and how are the elephants going to get watered. And I get to cultivate this. I get to pursue all of this. I'm excited about that. It's an amazing adventure with this will to obey and a, a job to do and this woman to love. He had his hands full, right? Plenty to make happen, plenty to pursue, plenty to give his time to. But all of it is going to come to a screeching halt in Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, we see pursuit, man, just go in crazy directions. You know Genesis 3. There's a serpent in the garden that starts talking to Eve. And when the serpent starts talking to Eve, he says this, hey, you can really eat of that tree. It'll be fine. Nothing bad's going to happen. You're not really going to die. And Eve's going to take of it. Let's read Genesis chapter 3. Verse 6, her response after being talked to by the serpent, 
said, then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were were opened. We already talked about this being incredibly passive. We've already said that, that Adam was there. He's listening. He never says a word. He never moves forward. He doesn't protect. He doesn't try to clarify how the serpent is, is twisting God's word. He does nothing. He just sits back and passively listens. And then once he sees Eve doesn't drop dead, he's like, hmm, I'm going to have a bite. That is the epitome of passivity. We already said the man is responsible to protect, provide, and to pursue all that's entrusted to him. That tree was entrusted to him. That garden was entrusted to him. And Eve, passive, does nothing. Now watch what happens in verse 7. The exact opposite happens. Verse 7, it says this. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, And so they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. This is just like a man. Just like a man. You say, how? Well, the problem with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, is that they have now sinned against God. We would all agree that sin is what kind of a problem? It's a spiritual problem. And how does Adam try to fix a spiritual problem? With physical leaves. And that's what happens with men most of the time. We're either passive and we don't say anything. And then when it gets all messed up, we say, oh, I'll rush in and help. And we over-pursue. We now become self-reliant. We now become dependent on us. We now say, I can fix it. No, 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 no. Adam, you can't fix anything here. Sin has entered the world. You think fig leaves are going to mess up or clean up disobedience to God? That's like burning a house down and saying, hey, will somebody bring me a broom? Doesn't work. We have something bigger here. I say this is just like a man because this is what men do. We always try to fix things with the wrong materials. That's the reason whoever invented duct tape is a millionaire right now. Am I right? I mean, think about it. Wing of the plane is laying down. Give me a little duct tape and some baling wire, and that rascal will be flight worthy in half an hour. That's what we do. We think we can make that happen. It even happens with my little guys. Man, my my kids at home, I, I watch them fix things the wrong way. I got four boys. We're eating at the table. One of them has sauce on his face. Thank goodness he's not going to be passive and leave it there for a week because I've seen that before too. He decides to over-pursue and to fix this on his own, and he doesn't wait for a napkin to be passed down the aisle. And many of you are thinking, oh, he's going to use his shirt. No, that would have been better than what he's going to do. What he does is on my table is there's a, 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 a pan of some sort of veggie or meat, and there's a cloth pot holder underneath it. He just pulls that rascal up, wipes his face, and slams it down. I'm like, what are you doing, man? It's the closest thing. I'm like, no, 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 that's not how we operate here, right? I mean, that is the epitome of a guy saying, hey, I'm going to fix it with the wrong thing. I hit a deer here 
four years ago. I lived in Texas for 40 years and never hit a deer. I get here in the first four months, I rattle my 2007 Buick, right? No grill, the bottom, the bottom uh, motor cover's falling out. Guess how I fix that, rascal? Not with the right stuff. Zip ties. I'll show it to you sometime. Super proud of this. Super proud of this. But that's what we do, isn't it? So bad that I have now begun to rub off on my wife. The other day I'm out of town. My son's mowing the yard. He's hearing something banging on the blade on the lawnmower. They turn it over and there was a bolt missing and a piece of metal kind of dangling down. My wife said, you'd be so proud of me. I'm like, oh, yeah. Did you go to the store and get a bolt? She goes, no. Coat hanger. I'm like, ugh. You're better than me. You're better than me. I'm rubbing off on her now, right? But that's what we do. We as men jump in and we say, I'll fix it. You know how many times after the kids have gone to bed, after I've addressed a situation that I thought I was addressing perfectly, that she comes to me and she goes, you know, we could handle that a little differently. You know that there's actually a heart issue there and it's not just, something else. Because I'm just ready to jump in. Look, I can fix it. Take it. You go there. You go there. You don't get this for, and I'm, I'm just making it happen. And I'm not addressing the real issue. I'm just fixing something. And for many of us as men, we either tend to be really passive and don't do anything, or we jump in and we try to over-pursue and we become self-reliant instead of being dependent upon God. Remember all those guys I told you about a minute ago? Let me finish the story for you. So they had a will to obey and a job to do, and for some of them, a woman to love. But you remember Noah, who gets off the boat, and he does a fantastic job and builds a boat for 150 years and saves the planet and all the animals. Fantastic, right? Except in the very next chapter, he gets passive and decides to get drunk. And then his two boys take advantage of him. Crazy. Now, what are you doing, dude? You just built a boat for 150 years. Don't be passive. What about Abraham, the guy who left it all to go to a land that would be promised to him? He's passive. He's passive when, when Sarah says, I can't wait on a child any longer. Here's Hagar, my maidservant. Take her. Not a peep out of Abraham. Just plays along. Has a son named Ishmael. Crazy, isn't it? Passive. What about Abraham when he decides to overpursue? And he says, I'll fix this. I'll take care of this. I got you, Sarah. Hey, there's a famine in the land. We'll go to Egypt. And when we get to Egypt, the Pharaoh's going to think you're really beautiful. And he's going to want to marry you and kill me. This is what I'll do. Instead of trusting on God and depending on him, I'll depend on myself. And I'll say, you're my sister. That's overpursuit. Don't lie. Trust in God. Or what about, what about Moses? After he goes down there and tells Pharaoh 10 plus times, let my people go. He gets out there and he needs water and he takes that staff of his and instead of waiting on God, he says, I got this and whacks that rock with a stick so water will come out. I got it. Depend on me. Depend on me. David. David is the epitome of a man who depends on God. He looks at a 10-foot giant and says, hey, I'm not going to kill you. God's going to kill you. He's saying, I'm depending on God. And just a few chapters later, it's the same guy that looks at a woman bathing on a roof and says, I want her. 
And when he gets caught, he says, I'll fix it. And his fixing is not confession depend on God. His fixing is I'm going to have her husband murdered. I got it. I got it. You say, oh, Russell, what about the New Testament? Fine, Peter. Remember Peter? He sees Jesus walking on the water. He says, Jesus, can I come to you? And Jesus is like, come on out. And he's looking at Jesus, and he's walking, and he's trusting. And the minute he takes his eyes off and says, I got this, what happens? Starts to sing. It's crazy, isn't it? That's, that's, that's how we're bent. Either pass him and don't get out of the boat, or we get out of the boat and we say, look at me. And there's this piece in the middle that we would look at it and say, God, I want to trust in you so that I can provide and I can protect and I can pursue and I can be sacrificially responsible for what you've entrusted me with. Let me show it to you visually just to make sure I, that you're not just hearing my words. That, that there's this idea that on one side we tend to go to passivity and on the other side we tend to go to self-reliance. And we want to be in the middle sacrificially responsible and depending on God. That's where we want to be. We want to be in the middle. But here's the reality. If you are passive, you are going to have to make a move from passivity to assuming responsibility. You're going to have to say something. You're going to have to have a spiritual conversation. You are going to have to pray. You're going to have to do something to move from that passivity. If you are self-reliant, you're going to have to move from depending on me to depending on God. And some of us think we're depending. We got this thing figured out because I go to church on a regular basis and I put some money in the plate and I'm good to go. No, 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 no. Not depending on what you do, depending on God. And we've got to make a move. It's got to happen. And unfortunately, we, we just got a, a world that either celebrates in the caricature, caricature of a passive man, just watch TV, We've got the abuse and manipulation and domination of men who overpursue and are self-righteous and independent. What would it look like for us to be dependent on him? Crazy, isn't it? It's hard. So I can say all that, and next week we're going to start talking about the ladies, and John will be here to do that, thank goodness, right? Um, <laughs> I, I just say this. Um, I, don't, I don't really care that if after three weeks, you know, provide, protect, pursue. I don't care if I see you in Walmart and we quiz each other on what the definition of manhood is and you can say, hey, the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. Don't care about that, right? This is what I care about. I care about trying to figure out in our lives which, which one of these are we, passive or self-reliant? How are we missing the mark on providing, protecting, and pursuing? And how are we going to grow and change? And I'll tell you, the only way that happens is you have to be honest with yourself. It's the only way it happens. If we walk out of here and like, oh, I was all right. No, no, no. You have to be honest with yourself. And the only, for me, the way to do that is I just thought it might be good to give a little assessment here for you to, to look at it, fellas, and to say, hey, when it comes to work, when it comes to pleasure, when it comes to church, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to kids. Listen, if you're not married, this isn't just for the married guys. This is for all of us. Married and children are at the very bottom. This is masculinity. This isn't husbandry. Okay? 
So that we would look at it and on one side we would say, hey, how do I rate myself? Am I passive or am I self-reliant? And just go through the list and say, hey, who am I? Be real. And then on the back, we would say in those same categories, what are the steps that I need to take? So first question, what and who am I responsible for? You got to know what you're entrusted with and that you would go down each one of those and say, this is what and who I'm responsible for. You say, how have I been passive or self-reliant? Like you would say that specifically and write that down. And then finally, what action steps need to be taken to get to sacrificial responsibility? What action steps need to be taken so that I can be dependent upon God? There's going to be somebody at the door going to offer you this. Don't be passive and say, I don't need it. Just take it. Take it. And then I'm going to make a deal with you. Men, if you're married, take it and talk to your wife. If you're in a small group, take it. Talk to some men in your small group. If you're not in a small group, I want you to be in one. But if you're not in one, this is what I ask you to do. Find somebody you love and trust that you know knows Jesus and sit across the table from them and say, this is what I got. And you say, I don't have one of those either. Just email me, russell at radiuschurch.org. I'd love to meet you sometime, and I'll talk about it with you. That's how serious it is for me. Like, I just don't want to talk about it. How do we apply it? How do we take up the mantle of saying we want to be sacrificially responsible like Jesus Christ was for us? Let me pray for us. Oh, Lord, easy to say these things easy to say, but Lord, I can give example after example in my own life where I have either been passive or self-reliant, and I just want to depend on you. I want to know how to do that for being a husband. I want to know how to do it for being a neighbor. I want to know how to do it for all the ways that you've and things you've entrusted me with. Lord, I thank you for the series and really glad that we've gotten a chance to, to look at what your word says about masculinity, but now we've got to do the hard work. And I pray that we would. Lord, as we've said that you are the better provider, protector, and pursuer, and you ended your pursuit for us on the planet when you gave your life so as we take this bread and juice, I pray you'd be honored and we would do it knowing that you are going to return, that your pursuit for us is not over. So Lord, I pray that that inspires us men to say, man, I want to pursue like God has pursued me. He's chased me down. Yeah, Lord, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.